In addition to Mark not knowing how to work windshield wipers, last night I left the sunroof open on my car all night. So we might have an occasional we might have an occasional good thing to say about God, uh, but don't listen to us when it comes to cars. In John chapters 11 and 12, um, our story has quickly picked up the pace. It all started with the resurrection of Lazarus, which was the final straw for the religious leaders who opposed Jesus. And since then, we've transitioned to the final week of Jesus's life and the end of his public ministry. Almost all of Jesus's words and the rest of this book are spoken exclusively to his disciples. But maybe the most alarming development in our story is the way that Jesus has begun speaking about himself. He said last week that when Mary anointed him with perfume, she was preparing him for his burial. He specifically told his disciples that he would not be with them much longer. He said things like his hour had come and that his death would bear much fruit. These are all things that would be pretty alarming to the disciples. And we see a summary of his ministry in John 12, verses 44 through 50. Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the father has told me. As we move to chapter 13, the same sense of urgency from last week remains. The tone of the story is getting progressively darker. And as the clock continues to tick towards Jesus's death, we see Jesus settling his accounts, if you will. He only has a short time left with his disciples, and he has plenty to teach them before he leaves. You know, the words a person speaks when they know death is approaching. Those words are always important. And that's the case with Jesus's words today and over the next several chapters. What are the lessons? What are the encouragements? What are the warnings that Jesus gives his disciples in this last bit of time he has with them? And as we discussed last week, how do those lessons and encouragements and warnings translate to people like us, people living after Jesus's crucifixion? And after Jesus's resurrection. So open your Bibles to John chapter 13. Feel free to use the Bibles that we provide if you didn't bring one and take a Bible home with you if you don't own one. But before we do any reading in John 13, let's pray together as a church. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that you've given us to gather and hear your word to take communion Thank you for Sunday, whether it's warm or cold, whether it's dry or wet. Thank you that we can gather here and worship you. Thank you that so many of us have come from different places, 
different backgrounds, different experiences, different strengths and weaknesses, different dreams and different disappointments. Um, Thank you for bringing us together as children in your family, brothers and sisters in Christ. And especially as we read John 13, I pray that we would live like brothers and sisters, that we would love each other, serve each other, care for each other, and glorify you as a result. Thank you for your word, your spirit, your church, and your son. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. Starting in John chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. A good argument can be made that this verse, John chapter 13, verse 1, is a good heading not just for the story we read today, but really for the rest of the book. Maybe even the entire gospel itself, that Jesus loved them to the end. Now, this heading and the several chapters leading up to the crucifixion, these chapters prepare us to see the immense love that Jesus has for his disciples. And the story that we read in chapter 13 is just the tiniest sample of how great Christ's love is for his disciples. And that includes you and that includes me. That includes everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. So let's move forward to verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things... Blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me 
receives the one who sent me. So picture the setting. You're in a dark room. There is a low rectangular table. And there are 13 men reclining around this table. Now, people usually sat upright for normal meals, so reclining shows that this meal is particularly important. Specifically, it's around the time of the Passover. The Passover meal is meant to remind God's people of how God freed their people from slavery in Egypt long, long ago. These 13 men are sitting in a U-shape, and Jesus is at the head of the table. They're leaning on their elbows. Their feet are out away from the table toward the walls. And at that very moment, Jesus, the word who was with God, was God and was with God from the beginning. The one through whom all things were made. The light, the life of men. The true light, the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. The one equal with God, given the authority to judge. The bread of life. The one who gives out rivers of living water, the light of the world, the one who came before Abraham, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the Christ, the son of God. This man of all people washes the disciples feet. In that day and age, washing someone's feet was one of the most humbling acts of service you could ever perform. That's why Mary's anointing of Jesus in chapter 12 is so admired. Some people believe that the only person who should have to wash someone else's feet would be the lowliest slave. And in a world of dust and sandals and no running water, feet were dirtier, uglier, and smellier than they are today. And this thought of Jesus washing the disciples' feet It's even more ironic when you look back at John the Baptist's words at the beginning of the book. John 1, verses 26 and 27, John the Baptist says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. John the Baptist, a prophet sent from God, said he's not even worthy to untie Jesus' shoe. And yet here we see Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Now, Peter recognizes the incredible dishonor of Jesus washing his feet, just how inappropriate this whole scene really is. So he refuses Jesus' act of service. Now, Peter's motives are pure. He's horrified at the thought of his Lord and his teacher washing his feet. But Jesus insists. He implies that if Peter won't allow Jesus to serve him, then Peter will have no part with him. It makes sense when you think about it. If Peter can't wrap his mind around Jesus washing his feet, how in the world will Peter wrap his mind around Jesus dying on the cross for him? But presumably, as the story moves forward, Peter gives in, the rest of the disciples give in, and Jesus washes their feet. Now, what exactly is Jesus trying to accomplish with this act of service? Well, we see a few answers in the passage already. Number one, he's simply displaying his love for the disciples. Verse one told us that Jesus loved his disciples to the very end. This group of quite stubborn, 
often clueless and regularly skeptical men. They're more than just a group of buddies. Jesus loves these disciples to the point of offering this shocking act of service. But then on top of that, it's a symbolic cleansing of sorts. We see that in the conversation with Peter. Jesus is teaching his disciples that only he can make them truly clean. The same way Nicodemus needed to be reborn and the Samaritan woman needed living water, these disciples need cleansing. John the Baptist again somewhat previewed this in chapter 1, verse 29, when he called Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the dirt from your feet. Not really. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This isn't just about dirty feet. Jesus did not come to wash people's feet, as wonderful of an act of service as that might be. Jesus came to wash people of their sin. And that's what he's going to do. So we see a display of love from Jesus. We see a symbolic cleansing. But then on top of that, we see Jesus setting an example for his disciples. You know, it's wrong to read the Gospels and treat Jesus as nothing more than a good teacher. A guy who taught some nice lessons about how to treat other people. Jesus is far more than that. And if you view Jesus as nothing more than a good ethical example, then really you've missed the whole message. However, Jesus is not less than a moral example. We shouldn't shy away from having the same goal that Paul had, to imitate Christ in our words and in our deeds for the glory of God. Jesus is showing his disciples, through the way that he serves them, how they should serve each other. And foot washing is one of the best examples that you could possibly imagine. He says that no servant is greater than his master, no messenger greater than the one who sent him. And in the same way, no disciple of Jesus is too good to serve another disciple of Jesus. But before we leave the story, look one more time. Because it's easy to read this passage and think to yourself, Oh my, what a good guy Jesus is. He just loves his friends so much. That is so touching. Or you could leave the story and say, you know, I really should be nicer to that lady who bugs me at church. Thanks a lot, Jesus. Now those things may be true, and those lessons may have some merit, but if you look closer at the story, if you consider the context, Jesus' act of service has far greater power than just that. Think back earlier. We pictured 13 men reclining around that table. We have Jesus, of course, that's one. We saw Peter, that's number two. That leaves us with 11 disciples that we haven't talked about a ton yet. And one of those 11 disciples is Judas. We saw him in verse two. The devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Verse 11, for Jesus knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Way back in chapter 6, Jesus specifically said, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. 
Jesus has known all along that he's going to be betrayed. He's known all along that Judas is a traitor. And yet, Jesus knowingly washes the feet of this man who for a little bit of extra spending money is going to turn him into the religious leaders. This passage isn't just about being nice to your friends. It's not just some cute little lesson about how to treat people well. It's not even just about being nice to your fellow believers. This story is about loving and serving your enemies, even people like Judas. Judas, the guy in cooperation with none other than Satan himself. The guy who plans to betray the Son of God. The guy who desires to thwart the very purposes of the God of the universe. The guy who sets himself in alliance with Satan and sets himself against Jesus. And yet, knowing all of this, Jesus serves him anyway. This is not just a cute lesson. This is a powerful story about who Jesus is. Pick up in verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, Who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, and Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Jesus specifically identifies Judas as the betrayer. And the disciples appear to be clueless. One of the great debates, one of the great questions of the Gospel of John is, why none of the disciples appeared to do anything to stop Judas. Were they paralyzed by fear? Did it somehow just go over their heads? Did they somehow not hear or see Jesus handing that piece of bread to Judas? Did they just assume that surely Jesus had some trick up his sleeve? I mean, he wouldn't just sit back and let Judas carry out this plan, right? But the one person who gets the message... Is Judas. When he receives that piece of bread, it's the time to put his plan into action. And verse 30, it was night, shows us just how dark the story is becoming. But it's amazing to think that, of all people, Jesus is the one who gets the ball rolling toward his death. He's the one who breaks off that piece of bread and dips it and hands it to Judas. He's the one who sends Judas out of the room. He tells him to move quickly. It's almost like Jesus wants to die. But what this shows us is that even when it comes to his own betrayal, Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. 
Think back to what he said in chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. Not Judas, not Satan, not the religious leaders. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So once Judas leaves the room, Jesus refocuses on his disciples. At this point, Judas is effectively no longer a disciple. And Jesus, like he did last week, he teaches that somehow, one way or another, his death will bring God glory. But then he gives another teaching, that the world will recognize his disciples as his disciples, based on their love for each other. Earlier, we gave three reasons for Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Number one, to display his love for them. Number two, as a symbolic form of cleansing. And number three, to be an example of Christian conduct. But here we see the fourth reason that Jesus washed their feet. He washed their feet to show them and to show us how to properly represent him in the world around us. Now, you know that whole thing with Judas? That's a real bummer, isn't it? But at least Jesus still has Peter, right? That's something going for him. Verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Judas will betray him. Peter will deny him. The rest of the disciples will scatter when he's arrested. And yet he washed their feet anyway. Now think more about verse 35. This teaching that our love for each other ought to make us stick out from the surrounding culture. That people will recognize us as Jesus' disciples based on our love for each other. We don't love each other just to avoid conflict. We don't love each other just so our services and our meetings and our meals and our church events will be more pleasant and less tense. We love each other so that all who darken the doors of Prairie View Christian Church will see that there's just something different about these Christians. Your willingness to love your brother in Christ and your sister in Christ, that sends a message to the world about Jesus. As we read in 1 John 4, 20 and 21, 
If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. If you claim to be a disciple of Jesus, if you say that you love God, but you don't love your brother and sister in Christ, you're not willing to wash someone's feet, then the world will call you a liar. And rightfully so, because we would be liars. Now, what's the modern equivalent of washing someone's feet? And after all, we live in a different time, a different kind of world. I assume most of us have relatively clean feet. May not want to eat off of them, but they're relatively clean. Well, for Catholic theologian Henry Nguyen, it was serving at La Arch Daybreak Community, a center for those with severe mental and physical handicaps. Nguyen left behind prestigious positions at places like Notre Dame, Yale, and Harvard, to love and serve people in some of the most humble and least glamorous circumstances that you can possibly imagine. Now, of course, your form of foot washing may look different. You may be called to something else. But nonetheless, whose feet are you called to wash? How can you serve your fellow believers? And taking it a step further, how can you serve your enemies? Someone like Judas. But in all of your desire to go out and serve others, to do what Jesus did, don't lose sight of how Christ has already served you. The greatest act of service that Jesus ever performed, far greater than washing someone's feet. Theologian D.A. Carson writes, The foot washing was shocking to Jesus' disciples, but not half as shocking as the notion that a Messiah would die the hideous and shameful death of crucifixion. The death of the damned. But the two events, the foot washing and the crucifixion, truly go together. The revered and exalted Messiah assumes the role of the despised servant for the good of others. Or as Paul would put it in Philippians 2, 6 and 7, Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, Not just to the point of washing someone's feet, but to the point of death, even death on a cross. As moving and as inspiring as this act of service might be in John 13, Jesus' greatest act of service comes later in the story. That's when instead of looking up at someone as he washes their feet, he'll be looking down at them from a cross. And those hands that he used to serve his disciples, and even serve someone like Judas, his hands will be nailed to that cross. For people just like them, people just like you, and people just like me. So as we leave here, eager to serve each other, eager to serve the world, maybe even eager to serve our enemies, let's not forget the real point of the story. Jesus' service for us. And you see that nowhere better, not so much in washing feet, but you see it nowhere better than on the cross, where he died for sinners like us. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for sending your son who gave his life as a ransom for many who came not to be served, but to serve. It's humbling to think that Jesus would wash feet like ours, that he would die for people like us, that he would forgive sins like ours. But thank you for the gift of your son. Thank you for your son's obedience. Thank you for your son's humility. Thank you for your son's sacrificial death, that he was sinless, perfect, a spotless lamb to take away our sin. Be with us this morning as we think through John 13, as we wrestle with this passage, as we continue singing, as we take communion. I pray that the words you've written down in your word this morning would stick with us and would stick in our hearts and stick in our minds and that your spirit would use these words to shape us and change us and transform us into people who look more like your son. To imitate Christ. To give people an example of who Christ is. I pray that the world outside of these walls would know that we are disciples because of our love for each other. We love you. We thank you for Jesus. We ask all these things in his name. Amen. We're going to sing one more song. And once we're done singing that song, we're going to prepare for our time of communion. So let's stand as we sing together.